Do keep in mind that Vacation Bible School is just around the corner. July the 9th through the 12th, this is the time to be inviting friends. This is the time to be making plans. This is the time to be seeing how you can be involved in helping everybody as needed in some way, whatever your ability is. Please let it be known uh, that you're willing to help, and we would love to be able to work together to make this the greatest vacation Bible school that it could possibly be for the glory of God. One small thing that you could do to help our teenage vacation Bible school is we need the gallon milk jugs. If you could bring, we need like two, 250 gallon milk jugs. So if every family brought one, that would probably be enough. Some families are going to forget. So if you will bring two and that'll make up for your neighbor uh, that might forget that. And that would be a benefit. Uh, we'll try to have drop off points at each end of the uh, foyer tonight and, and Wednesday night. If you could do that, that'd be a big help. It's exciting to think of Vacation Bible School and the number of seeds that are sown in hearts that, that are lying in those hearts that are ready to grow even decades into the future. And I'm a firm believer that we'll never know this side of eternity all the good that is done each year in Vacation Bible School. Let's do our part to be one that plants seeds. Here we are, July the 4th is just around the corner. The Declaration of Independence a tremendous time in the history of this nation. John Hancock, the president of Congress there in 1776, signed in big, plain letters his name. And he turned to everyone else in that room of Congress and he said, allow John Bull to see that. He can see it without his spectacles. Now he can double the price that's on my head. And I urge every one of us, we must stand together. We must hang together if this is to succeed. And Benjamin Franklin said, yes, we must hang together. Most assuredly, if we don't, we'll all hang separately. The price of freedom. That wasn't just a cute remark. What he said was true. The risk of the ones that declared our independence, that signed their name, the benefit that you and I enjoy over 200 years later. Now we could talk about the cost of freedom, and that'd be a worthy study. But for a few minutes this morning, I'd like for you and I to consider some of the blessings of freedom. Now, as a nation, it ought to be obvious to every one of us the blessings that we have in being a free nation. But when you think about the Babylonian captivity, if you know very much about Israel and them being destroyed almost, except for a remnant that were taken over into Babylonian, and after 70 years, they were allowed to come back to Jerusalem. But they came back to a town that was pretty much destroyed to a temple that needed rebuilding, and years later, even the wall would be finished. When we study Haggai and Zechariah, and by the way, if you're looking for Zechariah in your Bible, it's the next to the last of the Old Testament. And so today, all day, we'll look at some teachings out of that beautiful passage. They were contemporaries, Haggai and Zechariah. It's believed that Haggai must have been an older prophet, and Zechariah must have been a younger prophet. They were urging the people as they were working on the temple to not lose faith, 
to not fall back and to lose faith as their fathers had lost, but to continue the work. Now think about this for a moment. How grand it must have been for them to have independence. They were finally free from the Babylonian captivity. They were finally allowed to come home. But along with this freedom came responsibility. You see, now, if their city was to be what it ought to be, it was no longer that they could blame the Babylonians. They no longer could depend upon the Babylonians. Along with freedom comes responsibility. They were responsible for rebuilding the temple. So those prophets are sent by God to encourage them to continue building back the holy city and the holy place of God. Now, of all the things that they could have used to encourage, it's interesting to me that Zechariah, here in the text that has been capably read for us, he doesn't say in this text, think back to all that terrible captivity that you've been through. Think back to the former days of destruction before you were taken captive. He doesn't even say, look at everything that's happening today and the great responsibility you have. Look again, if you will, to that text there in Hebrews, um, Zechariah, the ninth chapter in verse 9. Notice how he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Of all the things... He doesn't say, concentrate on the Babylonian captivity. Concentrate on what's been lost. Concentrate on what is at hand. You have a lot to build back. What does he say? He says, I want to lift your spirits. I want to encourage you. Don't ever, ever underestimate the importance of encouraging each other. He says, I want to encourage you. How are you going to encourage them, Zechariah? They have a huge burden. They have a lot to rebuild. They're people that have been beaten down and now finally they have freedom. How are you going to encourage them? He says, I'm going to encourage, you, encourage them by getting them to lift their eyes and look for the coming of their king, the Messiah. And friends, that's the same for you and I today. We're blessed. We're in a land that has freedom. We're blessed. We're in a congregation that has bountiful blessings. Along with these blessings come great responsibility. How are we going to deal with the bountiful blessings and, and how are we going to remain faithful and, and not give up during all of, of the times of work to maintain the responsibilities of, that are the result of the blessings that God has given us? I urge you to lift up your eyes and see the coming of your King. Now notice, he doesn't just say rejoice. He says rejoice greatly. Zechariah says this is something that, that we can really look forward to. It's not something small, it's to rejoice greatly in. Well, what is it that they were to rejoice in? They were to rejoice in the coming of the Lord. And if you'll notice deeper down into verse 9, he even talks about that triumphant entry into Jerusalem where he rides on, on the colt of a donkey. Tonight, we'll touch on that even a little bit further. But you see, there's no doubt when he says, I want you to look for the king that's coming, he's talking about, I want you to look for Jesus Christ. I want you to look to the one that if we keep our focus on him, we always will be about the right kind of business. Turn with me, if you will, 
to John the first chapter. In John the first chapter, this is exactly the uh, beginning of what Zechariah was referring to about Jesus coming to this earth and about being our king on earth and, and being that Messiah for us. In John 1 and 14, notice what he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the king has come to earth at this point, and, and John has, is writing about when the king came to earth. And what did he do? He came as one of us. He didn't come just as God. He came as God in flesh. We can relate to Him better now. And He came close to us. He dwelt among us. He didn't live in, in some castle and, and enjoy only royalty and stay separate from the people. How many times do we see the lives of, of especially children that grow up as celebrities' children, and then they too in, enjoy or experience the life of being a celebrity, and then they do things, as we've seen recently, and their reaction to things, and we say to ourselves, they don't know the real world. They do not know the life of the average American. Do you realize the kind of judgments and the kind of words and statements that would have been said if Jesus would have come to this earth and He would have lived a separated life, a prestigious, royal life. He didn't do that. Rejoice greatly because your King is coming. And he's going to come as one of us. And He's going to come and dwell among us. And He's going to come and offer us the fullness of grace and truth. We've never seen grace so gracious. We've never seen truth in such a full measure as that which Jesus brought to this earth. But what's the glory for us? Let's face it, this has been fulfilled. When he wrote there in Zechariah, Zechariah was saying to those people that were living under the Mosaic dispensation, he's saying, look for him, look for him. He's coming, he's coming. Now he's already come. So what do we do? Here we are about our day-to-day -day life. And maybe right now in your individual life, today is a very heavy and burdensome day. Maybe, on the other hand, you're saying today is a blessed day. I'm enjoying so much of life today. It doesn't matter which way it is. How are we going to keep our focus? How are we going to be what God wants us to be? We still need to look to the coming of the King. Greatly rejoice. For our King is coming to us. Look, if you will, John, the 14th chapter. You remember in John the 14th chapter when he prophesied at the end of the 13th chapter that Peter would deny the Lord three times? And you remember as Peter was trying to digest all of this, how it must have been a very sorrowful time for him and those gathered around. And you remember verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1, where he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now notice this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. The teaching is obvious, isn't it? 
before Jesus ever left this earth, he said, get ready, live prepared, because I'm coming again. I'm going to prepare a place, and I'm going to come back, and I want to take you with me. When we go to 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, we see a very similar teaching about Jesus' second coming. And the interesting thing is that that passage in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, actually ends by saying, therefore, comfort one another with these words. But notice as we read 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. How are we to be about our responsibilities? How are we to enjoy the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ because we're free from the bondage of sin? How are we to do this? In Zechariah's day, it was, lift up your eyes, greatly rejoice, your king is coming to you. Even before Jesus left the earth, he was teaching that same principle, except this time the king is coming again. After Jesus had been ascended, the teaching for the church, the teaching to New Testament Christianity is still the same. Be ready for that day when he'll come down in the clouds and we'll rise up and we'll be with him forever. Friends, I need to get this simple truth. When I focus wholly on today, or on the past, or on tomorrow that leads to temporal things, I will always get off course. The only way I can be what I need to be, the only way I can live the most blessed life, is when I can keep my eyes on that king that is returning one day in the clouds. I have to live every day in view of that. But you know, there is a third way that Jesus is coming, and this one is by application. Okay, let's be real fair to it. It's by application. I'd like for you to turn with me to Matthew, the 25th chapter. There is a way by application that we could say that Jesus can come to us every day. We usually don't refer to it this way, but to apply it into our life, that's the way I need to understand it. To lead up to the teaching that I've just made that transition here, let's use the first two stories in Matthew 25 as a part of that transition. Talking about that final day when Jesus would come again, he begins Matthew 25 by talking about the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins. You see, five did not live their life in view of the coming of Jesus. Five did live their life in view of the coming of Jesus. Then we have the story of the talents. The five talent, the two talent. They lived their life. They were useful with all that God gave them, preparing themselves for the second coming of Jesus. As a matter of fact, when He returned, now as we continue to think about the joy of the Lord, this year and in this lesson today, think about this. When he comes back, this is what he said to the five talent in verse 21. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He says the same thing to the two talent that used his talents. Enter 
into the joy of the Lord. But for the one talent man who buried his talent, he wasn't living in view of the fact that Jesus would come again. He was only told that he would be cast into a place of outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, it's these two stories that have painted the picture that there is a day that Jesus is coming again and be ready. Now he gives us some insight to the day itself as we go to the third story in this chapter. He gives us a view of the day of judgment. And he speaks, and let's begin reading in 37. He's just said to them in 35 and 36, I was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, and in prison. And he says, you came to me. Now let's pause there for just a moment. If Jesus said that to you, wouldn't your response be what theirs is going to be? Wait a minute, Jesus, I understood the fact that you're coming the second time, but I don't understand the times you came to me sick or in prison or needing food or water. Jesus, I, I just don't understand. What do you mean by the fact that we've met each other in those conditions? 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, most of you probably know that if we read on deeper, we would have just the opposite being taught also, where he says to another group that I come to you in those same situations and you didn't help me in those situations. And when you did not help the least of these, you did not help me. Friends, the teaching is direct, but the principle is also magnificent. The teaching is when I see even what I might think is the least of these in need, Jesus says, that's me. That's me seeing if you'll help me. Has Jesus come to you this past week? He probably has. Did you help him? Do we even have eyes open to see when Jesus comes to us? Because we're trained by the world that we live in to only notice prestigious people and only notice possessions and only notice things that are powerful. And Jesus is all about humility, and we're going to study that even deeper tonight, coming right out of Zechariah, the ninth chapter and verse 9. Jesus was all about riding a lowly donkey. He's all about humility. And he's trying to get us to be all about humility so we actually have eyes open to see those that are hurting, those that the world would never give attention to, they'd never notice. Just a little sideline, but it's a very important announcement. We're having more requests for food than we've ever had in the life of this congregation. Several days last week, we helped five families each day out of the pantry. If you haven't been bringing things for the pantry, 
there's never been a greater need. We can have a stock pantry and within a week or two be desperate again. But why would we do that? I mean, a lot of the people asking aren't people that's prestigious. We rarely have anyone wealthy ask for food. After all, that's who we like to rub shoulders with. Or is it? Do we see the poor and see Jesus? Do we see a child that would love to come to vacation Bible school if someone would just give them a ride? And do we see Jesus? I'm sorry, Jesus. I just, I'm busy and I don't care to rearrange my schedule for you. Maybe somebody else from some other faith will take you to a vacation Bible school. What a powerful, direct teaching that Jesus gives us. But you know, even the principle is powerful. When He's teaching us the need to help others, to reach out, and to realize that when we've done that, we've been a part of the greatest work that there is to be a part of. Friends, we're not going to sign some huge contract for a bonus that's going to be any more important than helping the least of these. We're not going to win some award or master some hobby, or climb to the top of some business, and on the day of judgment be more proud of that accomplishment than of taking the time to help the least. Do I believe that? Do I really believe on the day of judgment that I will be more thankful that I've helped the least instead of all the accolades that the society around would put on degrees and success and materialism. It's true. That's not a guess. So it's a challenge. How do we do the right thing day in and day out? Rejoice greatly for the king is coming. He's coming a second time, but you know what? By application, he's coming every day. Every day He's coming saying, will you just notice me? Will you just serve me? Will you just help me? And friends, it's not just this one passage. Let's scan through some other passages quickly, but the point has been made, but this is just to reinforce it. Look back in Proverbs 14 and 31. In Proverbs 14 and 31, even back in the Old Covenant, He says, He who oppresses the poor reproaches his Maker, but he who honors him who has mercy on the needy. Oppress the poor. Too many take advantage of the poor. And he says, just know, if you take advantage of the poor, you have taken advantage of the Creator, the Almighty God. And know this, if we have our honor toward God, if our honor is toward God, look at the rest of 31. We have mercy on the needy. I can't say as I neglect the needy, that I have honor toward God. I can't do it. 
Now, a similar thing is taught just a little bit different angle. Proverbs the 19th chapter and verse 17. Proverbs 19 and 17. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. See, notice that. He doesn't just say lends to them and it's a good thing. It's the same kind of language as Matthew 25. If we have pity on the poor, we lend to the Lord and He will pay back what has been given. We do it directly to Jesus. And then when we read in Mark 9 and 41, he said, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I will say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The interesting thing about this is this is the end of a paragraph where they talked about casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They talked about doing uh, miracles in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, let me talk about something else to you. Let's get down to something simple like giving a glass of water. He says, even when it's a glass of water in my name, it's a wonderful thing. Let's start bringing all of this round to a conclusion as we turn to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 is a beautiful passage that helps us remember how important day-to-day Christianity is. Seeing Jesus in all that we do. Seeing Jesus literally in the person that we're about to serve. Notice this, and and I'm sure you do it anyway, but please read this carefully because we don't have time to heavily develop this passage, but this passage deals with so much of really all we've talked about this morning. Let's read four verses here. Hebrews 6, we're starting verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation though we speak in this manner. Now, pause right there. If you, if you were not going to read further, and if you had not been in this setting of this lesson right now, and you knew that the Bible said, we're confident you have better things in your life that accompany salvation. You got that, that wording? You got that digested? The Hebrew writer says, there's better things that accompany salvation. What would you think they were? Oh, he's going to talk about heaven. That's a better thing that accompanies salvation. No, he's going to talk about things on this earth that we involve our life in, that because we're saved people, they accompany the life of saved people. And it's a better way to live. Notice what it is, verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name and that you have ministered or served to the saints and do minister. Now, he's referring back to that day of judgment when he says, the Lord's not going to forget. It's going to be on your account when we labor. And not labor that had financial restitution on this earth. Not labor that had payback and praise and accolades on this earth. It's simply labor of love. Lord, I love you and I love my neighbor. Lord, when I see the least, I see you. I want to be busy serving. It's the thing that accompanies salvation. How long are we going to do this? Look to the next verse, 11. And we desire that each one of you show... That's the idea of demonstrate. The same diligence, that's top priority, hard work, 
to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience or endurance inherit the promise. So he's, he begins this by saying, let's talk about some things that are wonderful, they're a great benefit, they accompany salvation. What is it that accompanies salvation so good? Laboring, serving one another, laboring in love. How long do I do it? You do it until that hope of the end comes. And don't be sluggish, be diligent. In other words, do it like faithful brethren have done before you for generations after generation. Friend, it doesn't matter if we have a teenager that's dedicated their life to the Lord or if we have a young family that has kids going in every direction or if we have a family that, that has an empty nest or an individual that, that is in the midlife or if there's someone nearing retirement or already retired or been decades into retirement. I need to find my place to serve others. And I don't need to be sluggish about it. I need to see the opportunity to serve others as an opportunity to serve Christ. Rejoice greatly. Your King is coming. By application, He'll show up today or tomorrow. And you and I will have to decide if we'll live like saved people that enjoy the benefit of serving in ministry. And we do that until the end. Because one of these days, we'll hear a trumpet. We'll see clouds. And we'll see our Jesus. What a glorious day that will be. Rejoice greatly. Isn't it wonderful that God gives us the opportunity to be a Christian? Gives the instructions of how to do it. And isn't it wonderful, as we've studied this morning, how simple it is? Christianity's not hard, is it? It's not hard to understand. It just takes focus and discipline to live it. If you've never been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, this would be a wonderful day to rejoice greatly because you're saved. If you're a believer that's willing to repent, turn away from sin, confess before men, and be baptized for the remission of those sins, or maybe you have been baptized and somewhere along the way you've lost the way, and you want to come back to your Lord repenting, confessing sin, and let's pray forgiveness. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.